0: Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hi,
1: this is Gotti Kaufman, Managing Director of RCLCo. Since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies, and organizations seeking strategic and technical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to our first-ever episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today's conversation is with Andy Carmody, who is Managing Director of Tricon Capital. Andy serves as co-head of Tricon Housing Partners, the company's land and home building vertical. In this role, Andy designs and implements strategy, manages senior relationships with key stakeholders, sources investment opportunities, and oversees the investment team responsible for business plan execution and asset management. He is also responsible for overseeing Tricon's master plan community development platform, which is operated through Johnson Company's LP. Andy, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of our podcast series and uh, to join us today.
2: Thank you, Gotti. It's a pleasure.
1: When I first met Andy, he impressed me as one of the smartest guys in real estate. At the time, we were all younger, Andy. Not that long ago, but still we were younger. And I would love to kind of hear your impressions from our first meeting. For me, it was refreshing to find a level of, uh, or a guy with a level of education and savvy in real estate at the role that you were playing at the time. So do you recall the circumstances, Andy?
2: Well, it's funny, Gotti. I actually recall meeting you before that first meeting at my first ever ULI council event. You were one of the featured speakers in my council that year. It was the first time I'd ever really been on the big stage in real estate development and gone to a national ULI event. And this guy Gaddy Gaddy Kaufman comes in and is our featured speaker, and I I hadn't met before. I really didn't know who who was who in the business, and I thought this is a sharp guy. I'm I'm gonna get to know this guy at some point in the future because he just had a fluidity and a knowledge base that was unmatched. And uh, not trying to pitch any advertisement here. I just remember it so clear. It was in Boston, maybe maybe twelve or fifteen years ago, for one of our spring or fall meetings. And lo and behold, we we were able to meet professionally and be, and become friends over time, which has been a, a great pleasure of mine in this business.
1: Well, it's uh, the pleasure is mutual, Andy, and admiration definitely flows both ways. So, it's been a pleasure uh, working with you and knowing you. And just for the benefit of our audience, it might be. Good for you to give us a very brief summary of the road that got you to being the managing director of Tricon Capital.
2: That's a terrific question, Gotti. You know, I I don't know if you and I had ever talked about it, but I actually began my career as an engineer. I studied mechanical engineering as my undergrad and worked as an engineer for several years before I ever got into business and then into real estate. After a few years working in some technical roles, I went back to business school for a couple of years. And then, from there, made my way into strategy consulting with a firm called McKinsey and Company, which for me at the time was really just the chance to do a few more years of business school to learn more about business, see lots of different challenges and situations, and continue to kind of grow my experience base and knowledge about business. Alas, finally, the time came to go out into industry and and get a job in an operating company and I uh, was fortunate through my network at McKinsey and elsewhere to meet some guys that were building a strategy team at Centex Homes during the, the early and middle 2000s. Given my background in strategy and my interest in building things and building businesses and building products and things that I had with my engineering background, it seemed like an interesting opportunity. So I jumped in with Centex in the in the early middle 2000s. And then since that time, I've, I've been really fortunate to worked with some great people in a handful of different roles after Centex with Kitson and Partners, a terrific Florida-based developer, and then more recently, helping with the turnaround and rebuilding of Crescent, the old Crescent Resources in Charlotte, North Carolina, and across the Southeast and and Texas and Florida, as you know. After wrapping that work up a couple of years ago, I had always known the guys at Tricon Capital and thought highly of them and the the planets aligned and it made sense for me to come up and join uh, which is where i am today
1: well we'll come back to tricon in a few moments uh, but before that uh, just a little bit more about you the person i'm struck by the fact that it seems you are right about 20 years younger than me at least in your family situation uh, i've been married for 33 years my daughters are 27 and 30 and i think that we're tracking almost parallel on all those what you tell us a bit about your family life
2: Yeah, well, I'm uh, really fortunate. When I was working for McKinsey & Company, I was in Chicago, and uh, of course, on the road and traveling regularly as is the nature of that business. But I met a a wonderful woman who became my wife, and we were married just over 13 years ago now. We have two really wonderful uh, daughters, seven and 10, who are growing up faster than we can believe, but we get to spend a lot of time with them and are really enjoying that.
1: great. I'm glad to hear that we I can tell you the road ahead for the next 20 years is going to be every bit as gratifying while also challenging as it's been for the last 7 to 10 years with your kids. <laughs> I I can I can only imagine. Yep, exactly. Well good. So when you think about life before we get to business itself and you mentioned already trying to balance travel with family and then balancing the career evolution, including geographic relocations over time, kind of stepping back from the overall in life now in, as, as a leading executive in real estate. What are the things that you think about when you think about choices in balancing an executive career with family and with uh, personal life?
2: Yeah. Well, Gotti, that, I, I think as anybody in our business knows, that, that's a real challenge. I'm, I'm certain it is and has been for you for years and certainly has been for me. But, you know, I've been fortunate to have a family that's adventurous and flexible, that ha- has embraced my career and my pursuits in my career and understands how important those are to me. And I've tried to respond by putting them first as often as possible. When I'm home, having quality time, being together, being with them, and, and doing wonderful things together. But of, of course, it's a major challenge, Gotti, to balance those competing needs because each would take 50 or 100% more on any given day than you could give to the other. So it's a great challenge. I'll tell you, Gotti, one thing that has been helpful for me, I've been confident and comfortable in my roles and in, in my, the various companies I've been in and what I've taken on. And I've, had to work very hard to get ahead and have progressively greater roles and leadership roles and my family's paid a price at times. And I feel like now I'm in a position where I've earned some of the flexibility and the ability to to give back to them and focus on them a little more. I, I certainly wish I could do that more often and wish I didn't travel as often as I did. But I'm comfortable that they're as important or more important to me than my work. And I'm able to balance that reasonably well, although they might argue at times I don't do the best job. I'm able to balance that reasonably well over a given period of time. And quite frankly, Gadi, I'm also in an environment today at Tricon that values, deeply values and appreciates family and understands how important their happiness and success is to my own happiness and success at work. So being in the right environment also matters. It would be considerably more challenging to tow that balance if my work environment wasn't one that truly valued and understood how important family is and allowed me to to make the decisions and pick my priorities the way I see best.
1: It sounds to me like you're like many successful and busy executives are trying to manage the, the quality of the time, perhaps to make up for not as much quantity of time that you have with a family. What are you doing specifically about that? And you also mentioned the Tricon values family time and the executives' relationships with their families. So what's Tricon doing to make it better? How can our listeners learn from that personally and potentially learn some policies or practices to implement in their companies?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Gotti. You know, on a personal level, The thing... And and believe me, I I didn't always do this maybe as well as I am today. And some might argue, I still have some room to do better. One thing I really try to do is work hard. In fact, I think I really maybe learned this from my time at McKinsey. I tend to work very hard during the week for, say, 3 or 4 days or even a full 5-day week, which often includes travel and meetings and long hours. But then to turn around and give back and unplug by Friday, Friday afternoon, sooner if I can, and really focus on myself and my family and doing things together uh, through the course of the weekend. It's not a great excuse to work hard and then you know, not work on the weekend, but it seems to be a balance that, that I've struck. I feel like I'm giving a little more to work early and giving a little more to family later. The other thing that I've done much more recently is I try as hard as possible, unless I have a major transaction or some significant event, to not work at all or to work very little, only maybe when my family's sleeping on the weekends. I get a couple days of dedicated time each week with them where I don't have work unless it's an emergency and they don't have school unless it's something unique. And so I try hard to to value and protect that time and not pick work up until maybe late on sunday evening or sometimes even monday morning after we've spent a great weekend together. And I'll tell you one last thing, a little trick that's been really terrific for particularly for my family. We started a tradition about 4 years ago called family fun night in my family, and every friday night, every friday night that we can, we save that time for family fun night where I'll unplug from work early enough to meet them for dinner, we'll have a dinner together somewhere, and then do something fun together as a family, whether that be going to the movies, or going home to play board games, or doing something fun, some fun or interesting activity together. It's turned out to be a really terrific way for us to reconnect after a busy week. As you know, as as children grow, they become busier and they have distractions and other things they would like to do. And we're scattered and running hard during the week, often the whole family now. And we try hard to protect that family fun night time. And my kids look forward to it. And my wife and I look forward to it. That's a great way to reconnect after a busy week and also start the planning or the fun or the time we might spend together for the upcoming weekend. That's been really a great way to be together and, and have quality time together for me and my family.
1: Andy, that's great. Take on value right there. Really appreciate you sharing that. That's a great nugget to dedicate a family fun night and other structured, predetermined, but consistent traditions of how to evolve as a family and how to maintain that connectivity and have some string of pearls of experiences that may be unique every week, but nonetheless, you know, they're going to happen every week and some are going to be terrific and others are going to be just good, but nonetheless, you are there and you are engaged. So thank you for sharing that. So let's go to your professional life a little bit and talk about real estate and your career in real estate. So you mentioned that you went to business school McKinsey and then into real estate with uh, Centex and then Kitson Crescent and now Tricon. Why real estate? What about real estate brought you in? What kind of lured you into that business to begin with?
2: You know, Gotti, for me, that is the key question in my career, you know, in the choices I've made since business school and beyond. And what I realized when I was deciding to leave McKinsey, which was a point in my career at which I had to sort of decide what did I want to do for my professional career and where did I want to focus? I had been a generalist. And you know, an engineer before business school and a generalist after, and it was time to decide. And so I was very fortunate in leaving McKinsey to have engaged a career coach that walked me through a series of exercises around each of the jobs I had held in my past and what I liked about them and what I didn't like about them in this very simple but organized way. It only took me a few hours to do the exercise and think through it, maybe a few more to, to think more deeply and understand why I had liked certain situations and others I had not enjoyed so much. And one of the big things I realized, or actually really two, Gotti, was one, I enjoyed my work much more in my past when I was building something, when I was making or building something, a true physical product that came to life that ultimately our customers bought and used in some fashion. And one of my early roles as an engineer was with the Boeing company in Seattle. I was fortunate to work on the redesign of the 737 airplane, which has been, as, as anyone in aviation knows, a pretty widely used and successful program. I take great pleasure in seeing a 737 come in to land at an airport when I'm on a trip or to ride on one for a given trip or journey or vacation somewhere. Something about that physical product, something meaningful in that physical product that really resonated with me, whether that was a car or a medical device or airplanes or something else. And when I was introduced to home building and, and the group I joined at Centex and home building, the product really resonated with me, which was someone's home. And as I, I learned and got deeper into the business, even more so the creation of communities and the places where people live. I I simply, before I became acquainted with the business, wasn't really aware or hadn't thought that deeply about how homes and neighborhoods and communities were were conceived of, created, and made. As I learned more about the business, it it really resonated with me, Gotti, that this was powerful, valuable, and important. And it was a product that was made that I could get really excited about and, and really pour my full heart and energy and effort into creating, which for me was important. Compared to maybe doing something that may have been more legal or more finance oriented or, or some other component which was less exciting to me but I think each person has to decide what excites them and, and and gets them up in the morning what where do they drive where does their energy come from and what drives them and this was very important to me
1: so you discovered you discovered your passion for building things or being part of building something tangibly in the future you'll get to enjoy and see and see other people enjoying from Boeing. What, what, what did you take away for the rest of your career from the Boeing experience in addition to that recognition, that realization about your makeup internally? What, what, what other principles or benefits or business tools have you lifted out of your Boeing experience?
2: You know, I'd actually... One of the most important, he started at Boeing, and I was able to further this through uh, uh, some client work at McKinsey, was an approach to complicated product development, product planning, design, features, specifications, and the integration of the many components that go into any complicated product, like an airplane or a car, or or now, in in my case, a home, or a neighborhood, or a community. At Boeing, right, Boeing takes teams of tens of thousands of engineers who work for 3 to 5 years on the design of a new airplane, and they're able to organize, and manage, and integrate all of that effort and all of those components in a very sophisticated way, which has created a product that's not only commercially viable and profitable, but also extraordinarily safe. And, you know, these things fly all around the world with thousands of parts and people contributing to designing, building, and then operating them. They do it very safely. And the method they used and and those we taught other clients when I was at McKinsey related to how to plan and manage the upfront design to achieve your goals. has been something I've used repeatedly since that time.
1: Great. So from Boeing to McKinsey, what's the takeaway from McKinsey?
2: You know, I think in addition to the product development, product planning I just touched on, one of the probably the, the other biggest lessons from McKinsey is really around communication. As a professional advisor or consultant, really our only, our only major product at McKinsey, our major output was our communications, both written and verbal, was how do we conduct our work, but then most importantly, how do we deliver that to our client in a way that was compelling and understandable and actionable? And at McKinsey, we took great emphasis on crafting our key messages and then the delivery of those through our presentations, whether written or or verbal or or a combination of the two. And it's something that I've spent a lot of time on since McKinsey in my various roles. First, in, in my own work after I left the firm, But much more importantly since then in helping and guiding others, particularly my teams and colleagues, to exert substantial effort on clarifying their thinking and then focusing very clearly on how to communicate concisely and directly in a way that would resonate for whomever their audience is, whether that's an investor or a regulator or a client of some sort, or even, you know, doing a presentation in in a in an industry forum thinking. And exerting substantial additional effort on how to structure, plan, and deliver your messages and your communication. I'm sure this is something, Gotti, you you talk about with your teams regularly in your business. It can can be really impactful, but it's a place that the, the average colleague or the average employee may not know or may not have acquired along the way. And it's something I emphasize heavily. And I think helps us be more effective as a company and more more importantly helps my colleagues be better. And more successful professionals.
1: Without a question, it's very helpful and I'm sure that served you well. I love seeing the evolution of the kind of like the, the, the toolkit that you picked up from each one of the stations. So the next station is Centex. Briefly, what did you do there? And then what are the big takeaways from that station in your career?
2: You know, when I joined Centex, Scotty, the housing market was clearly on a substantial upswing and it was an extraordinary time To join a home builder and to to be in this business, I I joined as uh, what we called strategic marketing. Essentially, I and several of my colleagues were strategic advisors to the division and regional presidents in Centex homes, which through the housing run up had become very large businesses. You know, a typical division could could be over, you know, over several hundred million dollars in revenue. And a lot of the decision making being done on the fly by construction field and managers and division presidents and you know and land teams and I and several others like me, joined the company to help bring some strategic thinking to some of those major decisions around land strategy, land acquisition, product development, product design, pricing marketing those sorts of things where we could be impactful as I reflect on my time at Centex now i I was very fortunate to join then because those roles don't exist, or very few of them exist in the major home builders today. And I certainly would not be able to run around and learn the business as a novice in the way I did today that I did then. We we were fortunate to be profitable enough and optimistic enough. But I was able to learn a lot in a very short period of time because I was able to go and explore, see, and learn, and bring ideas back to my business group to try to implement. If I were to enter that role today, I doubt I would have half the experience I had uh, during that time frame. But you know, in hindsight, and I'm sure many listeners would have the same view, I really learned a lot about the business and built my core foundation around real estate development, home building, and housing broadly. But one of the big lessons I learned, Gotti, was perspective, the time, particularly the time horizon and perspective on looking at the economy or looking at the housing market or even looking at our local markets. I recall when I first joined Centex, we were looking sort of at three to five year histories for whatever the given metric starts, home pricing, what have you. And then we did our five year plan, we just extrapolated those. 3 to 5 year trends out into the future which of course sounds very foolish today and produced extraordinarily optimistic and rosy you know market conditions that turned out to be widely mistaken sometimes i'm startled as to why others maybe with a little more experience in the business weren't taking a longer term lens but i'll never forget as the housing market began to falter a little bit i began to search for more data and understanding and went back to a 20-year look back in the markets where I was operating. And I'll never forget, uh, I took sort of my conclusion to my division and region presidents and said, guys, I think we're in trouble because when I look back a little further, it doesn't look as rosy as we thought. My division president on that day said, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't buy a new car or go out and buy a new house. I think this is gonna get a little bumpy from here out if i had only known what he really meant when he told me that uh, back in 07 in early 08 as you know the downturn was really underway that perspective today you know now i look back and say gosh what's occurred over the last decade or more really you know at this point maybe a 15 or 20 year lens is better to help guide or inform us about better decision making or or maybe just to apprise us of risk we might be taking in a given investment or decision versus some longer term historical rationale.
1: Well, now six or seven years into a housing market recovery, I think we once again have a class of uh, young executives who have not lived through the one or more downturns and they probably would benefit greatly from uh, heating or listening to the lessons learned from that experience with So. From Sentex to Kitson, why don't you give us briefly, again, a summary of what you've done there, and then what did you take away from the Kitson experience?
2: Sure. Well, as I moved from home building, which was really one of the largest public home building companies at the time, to Kitson, it was a big change for me because in a large public environment, particularly at the division and region level, I wasn't involved in a lot of capital planning and not a whole lot of substantial underwriting. And at the time, our public capital mindset was more focused on growth than than absolute returns. And as I moved to the private side, we all know the private side runs primarily on financial returns. And it was really my first exposure to private capital, pension capital, and, and private investment in real estate, which which broadened my horizons dramatically. I wasn't now just a strategy and an idea guy. I, I had to actually be responsible for developing business plans more thoroughly and proving and vetting them with you know experienced and savvy private investment capital so it was a great learning experience again and, and a great evolution to, to maybe what is the other half of the business or more if you think about residential construction and development moving from public to private that is it was a great experience for me and uh, also, was a very interesting time because we were looking at distressed properties. We probably evaluated a billion dollars worth of acquisitions over three or four years. We got to look under the hood and see what had happened to other people's overly optimistic plans and dreams and ideas as we worked our way through lots of distressed situations for potential investment and actually worked some of those out. It was dramatic to see the level of investment made in certain properties, and then the, the the value, you know, three or four or five years later through the downturn and the impact that had, you know, particularly on equity and many of the debt holders taking substantial losses, was a bit of an eye opener. Again, talking about accumulating tools or experiences was an eye opener for me to see what happens when your optimism, you know, didn't turn out to be right, especially when it was to to excess. But ultimately, Gadi, Kits, and I was really honed my skills in thinking about institutional quality investment and underwriting, did my first major deal and was able to do a couple of other significant deals during my time at Kitson, which gave me real exposure to to actual investments and and getting them tied down and and bought and then launched and building small teams which then grew into larger teams around those investments to lead their planning and design or redesign, if you will, and, and ultimate development.
1: So then you were lured away from Kitson to join Crescent and help them kind of rebuild the company coming out of bankruptcy with the new owners and the new strategy. So a couple of takeaways. First of all, what was your kind of primary role there? And then what was the takeaway from that experience?
2: Oh, I I probably have more takeaways than we have time, Gotti, from my time at Crescent. But as a, a, a little bit of background, Crescent, what used to be Crescent Resources, now Crescent Communities, was a long-term Southeastern Florida and Central US developer that had run under Duke Energy, the large power company for decades, and through the real estate boom was recapitalized unsuccessfully and had to be reorganized through the downturn. And I was asked to join the company under new ownership, private equity and hedge fund ownership that had bought into the company reorganized it and was were reinvesting in it to grow it, to take advantage of the downturn and subsequent recovery. And at Crescent, I inherited and took on the traditional residential business, which was master plan community and resort community development, inherited a portfolio of a couple dozen properties, a few of which were performing, many of which were idle and, and several of which were C locations or liquidation plays. And over the course of uh, a little over four years, was fortunate to be able to sell off some of those assets. We brought additional capital into the business, redeployed that, and did fourteen new projects as well as resurrecting another five projects for the company and rebuilt this residential development business that you know essentially from a standstill to generating a couple hundred million dollars a year in revenue over that period of time, as well as was very fortunate to. To be able to assemble and build a high quality team of investment and development operating professionals uh, to oversee that business. In terms of key lessons, Gotti, you know, it was really my first direct experience with opportunistic capital, you know, that had bought into the company at great risk, hoping for a significant return with the recovery, and was also a real opportunity for me to play a meaningful leadership role. Both with that capital and informing and 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 developing my team, so it was really probably my most substantial operating management experience. I'd been in the business for a decade, but never had really had the full P and L and the full team responsibility. And, and stepping into that role on a big stage in a, in a big enterprise was was a real challenge. In terms of big takeaways, you know, I'd say maybe two. They may sound a little generic. I think you've got to kind of quickly figure out when you step into something that's existing, like what's of value and what isn't. Keep or enhance what's of value and as quickly as you can get rid of what isn't. It was probably one of our best moves to pair the portfolio to the best assets and redeploy the capital from those duds versus trying to continue to push a string on something that was unproductive, was really helpful and valuable. And and the second and it, I, I wasn't great at it, although I knew what I needed to do. But building a team of great professionals is essential, I think, in any business, and particularly in this business. Real estate investment developments are complicated, multifaceted, dynamic, and challenging business. And it sure is a lot more fun with extraordinary people than with average people. And and build, being able to build out that team was was very rewarding and, and uh, was one of, one of my great... Uh, I was very satisfied from that effort.
1: So, Andy, that all, uh, all those are little breadcrumbs on the way to where you are today at TriCon, where you're co head of the land and home building business. Among other things, you're responsible for overseeing what Johnson Companies does, which is a master plan community developer in a number of markets, uh, particularly Southeast and Smile markets in America. So, if you look out to your TriCon situation, what does success look like for you and for the company let's say in a 3 to 5 year horizon you know i think Gotti's success
2: for us is, is the business that i run at tricon is our original business doing equity and equity like debt investment in us and canadian residential real estate this is i'm kind of honored to to be able to to take control and lead this business at tricon although we're in several other businesses now I think success for me is is to carry that torch and and stay continue stable earnings and returns and hopefully growth in that business over time as an anchor if you will uh, in a positive way a foundation to tricon overall and I think the greater opportunity though is um, tricon has really grown and evolved over the last decade into an, an entrepreneurial environment where we've we've invested and been quite successful in other residential real estate sectors. And the, the real opportunity here is what's next? Where is there new and interesting opportunity in residential real estate uh, in North America? And what role can we play? What meaningful role can we play in in pursuing or enabling or creating opportunity, both for investors and, you know, and from a community development and a housing development space in the sector?
1: So if you think, if you had the privilege now to Fast forward, let's say for 20 years and look back, uh, imagining yourself then looking back onto your career. What do you have to have accomplished over the next 20 years of your career? What do you hope in 2038 when you are having this respective review to be able to enumerate as the things that you've done or the impact that you've made or the steps that you've taken to get to that 2038 time
2: frame. You know, Gotti, for me, I think there's three, three main things. If we're talking about 20 years from now, I'd like to be able to look back and say that I played, we and my teams played a meaningful role in creating some very high quality, sought after, wonderful places for people to live and spend time. If I could look back 20 years from now at a series of communities and developments and housing products, that people were excited about buying, are excited to live in, and and ultimately form and create communities and bonds that, that make up the, the, the reality of life uh, and living in in North America, particularly in the US, I would be really proud and satisfied. That's number one. I think number two, and I'm a bit of a way down the road now in, in my existing career, I'd, I'd really like to look back and think about the young and mid-career professionals I worked with that hopefully will have learned something from me and grown into larger and bigger roles and successful careers, whether it's in real estate or elsewhere, and been been successful in their professions and hopefully also in their you know in their family lives and, and how they conduct themselves and, and and what they do for a living and, and how they spend time and commit time to their families. And I think third, and it's probably a distant third. It'd be nice to make a little bit of money along the way. But I think I'm fortunate to be in a position now where the other two are a lot more important to me than the third at this point, Gotti, where I'd really like to do something meaningful in the back half of my career first, and I'm sure I'll be rewarded adequately for it second along the way.
1: That's a great perspective. And it's actually a great segue, particularly your midpoint of the giving back. A lot of people that I come across, young people that I come across, ponder the question to go back to business school or not. I wonder what advice do you have for a young person in their mid-20s to early 30s who has had now two to five years worth of a career someplace in or not in real estate and are trying to make that decision, which is both a economic, a very important economic decision, a very important career choice, and a very important potential step that takes a two-year hiatus to go do something and then get back to life. So who do you suggest should go to business school and who do you think might be better off not doing that, if anyone? You
2: know, Gadi, I think that's a difficult question to answer because I think each person's circumstances are different. Their current situation, professionally and personally, their, you know, their history and their career and even before they started working and, and their family situation. And quite frankly, their their goals and aspirations. So it's difficult to say one answer that would work for all. But I think for me, as I look back on business school, it truly was a transformative experience for me, where it took me from being a talented but naive engineer from a business standpoint and turned me into, over the course of 2 short years, someone with a little bit of a perspective on business and the ability to enter a spectacular firm and series of experiences at McKinsey and afterward that that have have given me a really interesting and challenging uh, business career and also have enabled me some freedom to make some choices about what I want to and don't want to do with my time and my career in a way that would not have been possible without going to business school. I'd add also, and I certainly see this and am asked for this advice you know, a couple of times at least a year from colleagues and friends. The other thing I would observe, at least in my experience at business school, is there would be almost no way that I could replicate or learn about as many facets of business and specifically as many business situations. My school was a case method school where over the course of a couple of years, we studied something like Six or 700 business cases, there'd be no way for me to have accumulated anything even close to that range and diversity of experience and have socked away lessons learned or ideas or thoughts or concepts or even just a bookmark to go back to at some point in the future. In no way could I have accumulated that. And I would argue that in many cases, young career professionals don't have access to that breadth of experience in their current roles. And that turned out to be really extremely valuable for me in my career. I also think I went through the same deliberations as probably many do. You know, does it make sense to take time off for two years? How will I pay for this? What will I do when I'm finished? I went through many of those same considerations and decisions. And in hindsight, probably did not need to be bothered by those because the experience. And the doors going back to business school open for me enabled me you know, to not have to worry about having spent two years off. In fact, I'd go do it again in a heartbeat. It was a lot of fun and was so enriching. And there are ways to finance and pay for that. And ultimately, in my follow-on career, I've been able to make the financing of that just a few years out of school it didn't really matter that much. And I think most MBA grads would have the ability to choose those paths that make the economics and the time... Not that critical unless you're in a particularly unique situation where you may have extraordinary earnings during that time or shortly thereafter... Or may have a family situation or pressing other matters that make taking that time off or, or being away or what have you more costly than it was for me.
1: That's great advice, Andy. And don't be surprised if you don't start getting phone calls from listeners who say, that was great. I would really love to run this idea by Andy or get some input from him. So thank you for sharing your perspective on that. So let's talk a little bit about Andy, the man, the person. What would you think if, you know, if we were having an interview and I was saying, well, Andy what's the downside? What is your, what are you not great at? Or what are you vulnerable about? Or what is the thing that you think you need to compensate for, if you will? What is it that you're kind of like a little embarrassed by?
2: You know, probably, well, as much as I talked about being able to balance family and work, it's been a challenge my whole career. And I, and I still have some ways to go. And I, I think Gotti, maybe the more fundamental issue, the thing I struggle with the most is it, is Impatience. I really, I have said another way, I have a high sense of urgency, as one of my career advisors once told me, which is a nice way of saying I'm extraordinarily impatient. I see opportunity and am engaged or enthralled in lots of the aspects of the situations I see in my career, in my work day, and in our business, and I'm often eager to take on more things than I can do or than my team can do in order to to figure it out, or unlock an idea, or pursue an opportunity. At times, Scotty, that sense of urgency is a tremendous value in being able to see something early and seize it and make it happen. But at times, that's a real battle of, of having too many things going at once. And I sort of don't believe... Maybe you're great at it, but I don't believe that anybody can do thousands of things at once well. I, I do better with a few major things than, than, than hundreds and hundreds of small things that's a constant battle for me between how much do i take on what do i do what's important and how much can i accomplish in a given period of time in a reasonable period of time is a is an ongoing battle and a struggle for me
1: and yeah sympathize with the problem being a very type a highly driven and also greatly impatient person and i wonder how you manage the challenge of not frustrating people around you. I know for me, I often set very high expectations about what can be done and how quickly it can be accomplished. That can be frustrating and uh, taxing on the people around me. And in my position, I do a lot less doing today than I used to. And I do a lot more expecting and managing and delegating than I used to. And the last thing I want is to frustrate and burn my team or my colleagues or even my counterparties in a transaction or in an assignment. So how do you manage that?
2: You know, that's been a real challenge, Gotti, because early in my career, I was surrounded by or selected into and others selected into very heavily type A groups, working groups and groups of people, both when I was in university and then in my early career jobs, I I worked at a tech startup in, in California for a time. And even when I was at Boeing, that's a large company, I volunteered for and chose difficult projects where usually... Only the hardest working people signed up for them. So that was then replicated at Harvard Business School and at McKinsey. So at this point, I think I had accumulated over a decade, you know, almost two decades of experience with with very high output, high energy driven people, much like you and and those in in your firm, Gotti. And what I realized as I entered a broader environment and a larger number of people, not all of whom woke up every day thinking about how to achieve more at work with every moment they had, as I might have. It's taken me a little while to realize that a a great team is made up of many different contributors. And not everyone is going to come in and respond to that demanding type A approach. In fact, many will shirk from it or or be you know, this an unrewarding environment. And it's taken me some time to realize that personal styles and styles of engagement, styles of energy and motivation are different for almost everyone. And it's my job now as a more senior leader to figure out what does motivate each of my people? What are their work styles? And maybe more importantly, what are they really good at? And how do I make the most of that? And where do they have weaknesses or or opportunities? And how do I augment or supplement around those with other colleagues or teammates or advisors or what have you. It's a lot more where I sit today about the greater whole than any one style or any one dominant type of person or dominant approach. It's about assembling the contributions of many in a style and way that they relate to and value and appreciate so that we could be more successful altogether than just being able to handpick my team of A players and not worry about that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, to most people, it is not easy to comprehend that a team is really an ever changing and a dynamic puzzle where the pieces of the puzzle themselves are dynamic and changing based on what's going on in their lives and who else is on the team and how the team and what the team is working on right now and learning how to navigate all that and celebrate people's successes and Providing them the opportunity to excel in the way they want to excel, not in the way we want them to excel, is perhaps as big a challenge, but very gratifying when it can be accomplished. Yeah. So thank you for sharing.
2: Certainly. I would argue, Gotti, that that's the greatest challenge in the position I'm in today. And it took me a long time to deeply learn, appreciate and understand that and how important the role, that role in in my responsibilities is today versus what I might have thought about 15 or 20 years ago.
1: Andy, looking back on your career, let's focus on a portion of your career in the real estate business. What mistakes have you made that you're willing to share with us? And most importantly, what have you learned from those mistakes? And how are you managing to avoid those or similar pitfalls in the future?
2: Well, you know, Gotti, we've touched on it a pinch already. The mistake of perspective, of historic perspective, was one that that I made and men, many around me made and, and many in the industry experienced it, you know with great force, not fully grasping where we were sort of in space and time and economic and housing market, you know, history and it's our relative position was a major oversight. If you think about those that were most successful through the housing downturn, it was those who saw early and had a different perspective on where we were as an industry. And found ways to take advantage of that dislocation, if you will, or that emerging opportunity. While the vast majority of real estate investors and executives, and even more broadly, the public, were euphorically riding the run up when imminent demise, which is obvious to us all now, was only obvious to a few then. So I think that perspective setting, stepping into any investment or situation, is really essential and was a major mistake for me. Fortunately it happened uh, early in my career and in a way that did not wipe me out, you know, personally or professionally, was able to leverage my experience and, and that experience into new opportunities. But it was a real challenge for me for a while and, and for many. And I'll tell you too, Gotti, the other real challenge or, or maybe just maybe a lesson I'm still learning along the way is this business and industry is so widely distributed across companies, and professionals, and roles, and capital providers, builders, and developers. Let's say one big lesson I've learned or mistake maybe I've made along the way is, is the way that I've lived and moved. I've sought out opportunity and been willing to move or relocate for that opportunity along the way, both in, in Florida and in North Carolina, and now in Toronto, Ontario, up in Canada. The opportunities have been extraordinary, but there's a personal price and a a price that my family pays personally as well with each of those moves as we've had to spend time relocating, have had to uproot relationships and friends, leave good friends behind, come alone to a new place and make new friends. I would say, professionally, my career may look interesting or attractive to some, but personally, there's a cost... To having seized those opportunities and worked very hard to realize them and having had to relocate to play a meaningful role in the companies that i've I've joined and been a part of
1: that's fantastic really good insight and i really appreciate that andy we could talk for hours but we are coming to the end of our time together and i wonder if there's anything that i did not ask you that you would want to bring up and maybe talk for a couple minutes about
2: you know, I think Gotti, well, my list is probably much longer than we have time for as well. I think Gotti, you know, one of the biggest questions or challenges I think we face in the industry today is sort of where do we go from here? right? We have gone through a very significant up, down and recovery cycle. and as we look at the economy today, the you know the u s. economy in particular and the u s. housing market, and the state of available credit, particularly to consumers, the job reports, what have you, all signs seem to suggest that things look pretty good at a fundamental level for the U.S. economy and and for housing. And in fact, the market is undersupplying by many metrics what would be any measure of normalcy. You know, I'm talking broadly housing development, whether that's for sale or, or for rent or what have you. So, I think the big question we have here is how do we develop that perspective I touched on a minute ago about where the market goes from here? Where is there opportunity and where is there risk? And I think it's one of the greatest questions of this cycle in time is where is the best place to invest capital today? Where is the most significant opportunity in residential real estate? And where are the risks and where are the uncertainties? It's something that we're spending at you know, Tricon an extraordinary amount of time. Debating and considering and trying to strategize around how to find the best possible opportunity going forward, and what seems like a market that's very strong fundamentally, but there's a such a level of unease broadly that nothing is obvious, nothing is is certain at this point in the cycle. So I imagine you and I could have a, a lengthy conversation about that next time we're together, and maybe draw some conclusions that would that would be good for both of us.
1: Well, I think you've shared a lot of wisdom and thoughts with us. Uh, really appreciate it, Andy. I think uh, there is very good chance. I would put money that 20 years from today, when you do have that retrospective on your career and life, that you will have found yourself to have successfully helped create great quality communities and housing for people in the U.S. and beyond. And you will have made a big difference. Maybe one step in that is today's podcast where you have great counsel and advice to people. And I am sure that the remuneration, financially and otherwise, will be fantastic. I'm taking away lots of great things to ponder and share with others, with your permission, Family Fun Night as a way to help balance family and career, focusing on tangible products and then learning each one or, or picking up the lessons that you learned learn from Boeing, McKinsey, Centex, Kitson, Crescent, and now Tricon, all are breadcrumbs that lead to a terrific career going forward and for someone who undoubtedly will have a huge impact on our industry and and on our lives. So, Andy, I want to thank you. You have proven without a shadow of a doubt that you are part of our Best Minds in Real Estate Community, which extends to RCL Co. team members, our clients, our colleagues, our friends, and our alumni. Your podcast, I am sure, will be very well received. So thank you for taking the time. It's been an honor and a pleasure talking with you today. I feel that we did cover a lot, and I truly, truly appreciate it. Before we sign off, you get the last word, Andy.
2: Oh, thank you, Gotti. The, the pleasure was all mine, and I'm grateful for the opportunity.
1: I will be seeing you soon. And once again, thanks and talk soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., Go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at rclco. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.